In those days, after the suffering of that time, the sun will become dark and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great fire, great power and splendor. Then he will send the angels and gather together his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the end of the earth to the end of heaven. Learn this parable from the fig tree. After its branch becomes tender and it sprouts new leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that he's near at the door. I assure you that this generation won't pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. But nobody knows when that day or hour will come, not the angels in heaven and not the sun, only the father knows. Watch out, stay alert. You don't know when the time is coming. It is as if someone took a trip, left the household behind and put the servants in charge, giving each one a job to do and told the doorkeeper to stay alert. Therefore, stay alert. You don't know when the head of the household will come, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the early morning or at daybreak. Don't let him show up when you weren't expecting and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Thanks, Quinn. So this Advent season is a season of waiting and preparation. It's making room for the coming of God. We sing this in our songs, uh, even if we didn't grow up uh, with a tradition that um, recognized or participated in Advent. We, we know this um, with our, our songs. We know this with the scriptures that um, come to mind. We know this in our bones as we approach this season. That the church starts with this um, season at the opening of our calendar says something fundamental about us in the God we worship. That this God is always coming, is always on the move, and we are a people that need to always be ready to be caught up in this movement. Maybe that description of Christianity is really foreign to you or unfamiliar or uh, the ways that you see faith happening in the world or the ways that you've known faith for yourself. That's not really how you've thought about it. So Advent issues an invitation to reset, recalibrate and be restored to this simple but sometimes disorienting message that Jesus has come and will come again. The hope, and that's the theme for this first Sunday of Advent, as James so brilliantly led us in. The hope that Jesus will come into our world as Messiah, as this long-awaited, long-expected one, the one anointed with God's spirit, that's what Messiah means, Christos, like the oil of anointing. And this Messiah will come to preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, and declare deliverance to prisoner and captive and sight to the blind. This hope 
is fundamentally a hope for change, for something new and different to happen. But change, as much as we often want change, as much as we're sold all sorts of visions for change, change is sometimes difficult to see. Sometimes it's difficult to accept and often it's really difficult to jump in and join in on change. So <laughs> as, as I was reading that job description, that messianic job description from Luke 4 and Isaiah 61, which is so familiar to Oak Church, I was thinking, what if someone came into our world right now perfectly fitting this description as someone who would, who would do all these things, declare uh, good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, etc.? What if a person like that were to show up in our polarized world or our polarized America? I think there would be a lot of pushback on all sides. I don't think that person would conform to um, any uh, partisan idea of, of what, a, a what a savior and what salvation would look like. I think the emergence of some sort of radical like this would be perceived as a threat, would be perceived as an enemy. This sort of conflict is often a good hint that change is on the horizon. In the biblical imagination, the sort of revelation of our own discomfort is also a hint that God is breaking in, that God is disrupting our tidy categories and our expected timing to create something new in the midst of the old. In some scriptures, like the scripture Gwen just read, this shows up as a darkening sky or a broke open world when God shows up and messes with us. Our passage in Mark's gospel comes to us as one of these oddball thoughts. And maybe it's a particularly oddball thought uh, for those of us who are just itching to get on with the Christmas stuff, itching to play Mariah Carey Christmas, to start chipping away at our shopping list, to do all the things that we need to do to get to the end of December. Most of us have become so comfortable with this like Charlie Brown styled infancy narrative Jesus showing up in our world that we're a little caught off guard when the lectionary comes up with this like second coming text and, and, and offers us to jump right into the season. As Fleming Rutledge, who's an amazing uh, preacher, uh, puts it, Advent is not for sissies. And texts like this from Mark 13 remind us that. So just a, a little reminder about Mark's gospel because um, I often feel Personally, I don't gravitate towards Mark's gospel the way I, I do like Luke or, or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew or the beautiful visions of John. Mark's gospel is like rapid fire. If you read the Greek, it's, it's all these, and this happened immediately. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's short. There are no time for genealogies. There's no small talk. There are very few parables. There's not time to tell stories. It's action. And Mark's gospel is also eschatological. It means it deals with the things that are ultimate and at the end. It's the prophetic is really big. That's why John the Baptist plays such a big role in Mark's gospel. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's oriented also towards drastic change. You might say Mark's gospel is apocalyptic. It has all these instances of the inbreaking of God and these cosmic conflicts and battles that are happening in real time and real space. Jesus is battling with these 
powers. Jesus is binding the strong man and it's oriented towards this new entering into the old and how weird that looks when it happens. There are a few parables in Mark and we get one in, in the passage we read today. And a lot of these parables have to do with a growing seed. You, you know, the, the seed, um, rather than in places like Matthew's gospel, the seed just doesn't grow for itself. The seed isn't like a mustard seed that flourishes for the flourishing of others, providing places for the birds of the field to rest. The seed in Mark is for the harvest. The seed is planted with the sickle in mind, right? The end is the whole point. And so for Mark, there's a mysteriousness to growth. It's enigmatic, it's not automatic. And there's a sober-mindedness that the harvest does not come without conflict, pain, and suffering. You might say of Mark's gospel, it's, uh, the message is fear the reaper, right? Um, but this apocalyptic good news is such that it is always oriented towards change and renewal. So if you're a person who likes change or just even a person who hopes deeply for change, Mark's gospel might be for you because it, it declares that it is um, the gospel writer is painstakingly aware that change is hard, that change hurts, and that change doesn't happen like incrementally. There are times when things are going to be moving too fast. There are times when things are going to be moving too slow. The change, the good news of, of Jesus is not always like up into the right on a steady, smooth curve. God's kingdom comes in fits and starts. And our job in this fits and starts kingdom is not to either force the issue. It's not to be like impatient and try to make it happen for ourselves. There are plenty of people around Jesus who are trying to force the issue or to drag our feet, to be inattentive or sloven. Our job in this fits and starts kingdom is to discern and to join in the movement of God in the world, even when it's strange, even when it's not on our time, even when it hurts. I think about in this season characterized by waiting and, and, and this idea of impatience, I think about my kids on a, on a road trip. Can I get an amen from the parents? You can drop that into the chat if you want. Um, but this idea that you're going to be on an eight or nine hour road trip and, and from the time you pull out of the driveway, you're already starting to hear things like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this sort of advent impatience, this sort of impatience that is desired by the good news in Mark's gospel. It's not that sort of impatience that is always just assuming that we're going to be there, assuming that the time's now, but it's rather the sort of like discerning impatience that desires to be there and then recognizes when you pull in that you've reached your destination, even if your destination looks drastically different than you thought it was going to when you set out. It's a, it's a smart, like cunning kind of impatience. It's oriented towards God's vision that is a little out of our control and, and not quite um, uh, fully formed in our minds. This is the Advent good news. As the Sam Cooke song puts it, that change is gonna come. And this change is gonna come not on our time, not even with our consent. But this change is going to come nonetheless. 
in our daily lives of faith need to be filled with these small actions that make it more and more likely that we're able to see it when it does come and to work with God and not push against God, even if some of our instincts are violated by this change. If this sounds like pretty intimidating, like it's some sort of like muscular spirituality that's only fit for the fittest, the good news is sneaky though, in that it comes easiest to the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. God's surprising work in God's surprising presence is a little more credible to those who tend to be a little more close to the action and a lot less buffered from the grit and grime and flesh and blood of the coming of the Messiah. This is the story of Mary and Joseph. Try to read that with new eyes towards change. Try to, try to step into the shoes, not just of, of Mary, which is brilliant, but also of Joseph. Like how challenging that good news would, would be to them and how it might not necessarily seem so good at the outset. A teenage girl being let in on the open secret of God's salvation plan, overshadowed by the spirit. I doubt it was easy for Mary to initially wrap her mind around it and to get on the same page with God. But she did, and her response was, let it be to me according to your will. I often wonder if Jesus should have attributed Mary when he taught his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And there's that line, um, not my will, but yours be done. That's kind of like a remix of Mary's, let it be unto me according to your will. All this makes me wonder if someone who had carried more privilege than Mary, had more options or more outs, could have said the same thing to God. It makes me wonder about all the times that God has given me chances to join in on the inbreaking kingdom, and I just, I flat out missed it. I couldn't see it. It seemed too strange or too far or too costly or too painful, so I said no way instead of amen. It makes me wonder how much more God's kingdom might advance if normal people like you and I said yes to God more often than we do. It makes me wonder if the main hindrance to God's kingdom coming isn't some opposition from without, but it's from within. It's God's own people who aren't awake, uh, awake and awaiting. It's people like you and I who don't have eyes and ears. Sure, the biblical story has all these characters who are enemies, who are without. Um, the, the biblical story is filled with people like Pharaoh who had hard hearts because they were persistently investing and reinvesting in the way things are. So when God tries to break in, it's perceived as a threat rather than welcomed as good news. In the Jesus story, there's, there's this character, Herod, who is so fearful of an uprising that might mess with his reign that he takes to genocide. This has to be the most stark opposite to hospitality. This is not making room. This is extinguishing the small flickering flame of God's light in life. Flash forward also to consider like people on the inside, like Peter or Judas Iscariot, who even though they were Jesus's students, even though they were Jesus's friends, 
even though they were the ones who were most in on what God was up to, they had tasted and they were serving the new wine that God was pouring. They still lacked eyes to see and ears to hear and imaginations to conceive of how they might be a part of it. Each in their own way and each had their own different result. They each betrayed Jesus or consider the uh, apostles in the garden of Gethsemane prior to Jesus' death. They had one job, stay awake, and they couldn't do it. I wonder about the kind of shame and regret they would feel from that failure after their friend and Lord was taken from them mere days later. They forfeited some of the intimate last times they'd have with him to get a little bit of sleep. I wonder what it would have been like if they had stayed awake. I wonder what they would have seen and heard. I wonder what else they would have known. I wonder what those things would have told them about God's plans and their arrival. I wonder what that would have required of them. So as we enter this Advent season, the thought occurred to me, we have all these beautiful terms and um, hopes and concepts and um, big, big things that we read and desire, especially in the Old Testament. These uh, we're talking about it in our Wednesday morning prayer, these, these big concepts that, that are, are really hard sometimes as we read from a text that is so far away from us. Things like judgment or rescue or peacemaking or calling or hope, it can be really challenging for us to understand. They feel so far away. The story feels so strange. It's hard to understand and to define and to live into. This Advent story helps us, uh, it calls us to, to look at Jesus, to look at the way God comes to us, to figure out the continuation of these big hopes, the definition of them, and the way they are incarnated, the way they become flesh in Jesus. That God's judgment and rescue and shalom and vocation and the hope extended to us has come to us not in some vague idea or concept or theology, but in the poor, brown, frail flesh of Jesus. And for us to have the wherewithal to be able to see or accept or receive or to know what to do when that comes requires a lot of preparation. It requires some repentance. It requires new eyes and ears. It's going to require us to reconfigure and recalibrate and maybe be completely rewired by the spirit to know who we are, to know when we are, and to know like how we are to be. I want to I wanna look, look just in the time we have left um, at our scripture today. I, I think it tells us a little bit of, of who we are, when we are, and how we are to be. First, there's who we are. I think we're, we're fundamentally, primarily, before anything, we're an Advent people. In, in our, our text today, we, we see this because it... it it tells us a lot about who we are. We're, we're people embedded in suffering. We're proximate to suffering. Uh, earlier in Mark's gospel, it talks about uh, Jesus is warning his disciples. And he says, when people, not, not if, but when people hand you over to the councils, right? Um, 
this is a, a mark of their suffering. He says, not you will be the ones who are going to be sitting on the council and in charge and avoiding suffering. It says, no, you will be suffering at the hands of those in charge. Our text also tells us about uh, awaiting and seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And this um, common English Bible sometimes translate this, translates this, and it's really weird. And sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. The Son of Man is translated as the human one, the one who most fully embodies what it means to be human. So when we, we have any of those questions about and maybe during this pandemic time, some of us are spinning about wondering, like, I don't even know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And we're supposed to look at Jesus as the human one who has come to show us what it means to be human, to, to be fundamentally sacrificial for others. And that's how we find our meaning and our calling in this world. And we're also those who are awaiting um, we're awaiting the human one and we're being gathered together as God's chosen people from all over. This like patchwork mismatch uh, bunch of misfits that are called and formed as God's people. Some of the conflict and suffering that we experience in this Advent time as Advent people is the direct result of powers and principalities like pressing in upon us in this sort of like lame duck period, that's what, where we get this cosmic conflict, where like if you picture these powers and principalities, they're like flailing and grasping at some semblance of control. Like if you've ever, um, if, you, if you hike or run or walk on the Al Bueller Trail at Duke, uh, occasionally you'll, you'll run across and it's kind of scared these little copperhead snakes, right? And sometimes you also run across a copperhead that someone has already dealt with. And even though these things might have their head cut off, they're still flailing about and trying to make something happen. Like even as like they're, they're completely rendered, um, uh, like the verdict is in and they're gonna be dead. They're trying to wreak as much havoc as possible. And frankly, like you can cause a lot of damage in this state, like flailing about. And the weird, the maybe even weirder thing is this sort of like success at wreaking havoc and claiming power, the sort of power that Jesus um, repeatedly uh, doesn't grasp at. Um, it can actually kind of be seductive if you're used to suffering. When you see someone else in power and someone else getting results, it can be kind of seductive when you're used to um, feeling really powerless. A parable uh, of this comes in the final days of Jesus's life when the, the crowd um, votes for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. That's such an insane parable or uh, such an insane story when we look at it. Like, you guys, Jesus Christ, right there in the midst, and you're going to release this like roughneck, uh, like uh, violent insurgent. And when it comes down to it, like the people were shooting their shot. They thought Bar Barabbas was a far better match for Rome's power than Jesus. Barabbas was their hope, not Jesus. It makes me wonder how often we make similar estimations that we'd rather choose someone who, um, even though we don't like them that much, they, they might get something for us uh, rather than sticking with Jesus, the suffering servant. In the Barabbas story, they hadn't yet learned and sometimes we still don't learn that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. But in the story of Jesus, 
the human one who comes, it tells of a future in which not a stone will be left on stone of the old. The house will be torn down and rebuilt on the rejected stone, on Jesus himself. Jesus in his first coming and in his second coming is rebuilding the world around himself. And often when that happens, even as it's happening, even as it's already begun to happen, it seems weak and small and ineffective and inefficient and like foolishness to the world but it winds up being the most real and true and durable thing possible. The wisdom and power of God operating in and on and through the gathered Advent people of God. So that's what it means to be the Advent people of God. Those waiting on the one who has come and will come again. Another question is, when are we? We live between two Advents. It shows up in our passage with this short parable and Mark's weird flourishing parables. It says, like the fig tree who the summer is near, but it sprouts in the winter time. Like we're, that, that's like us. We're, we're like, we're growing as in, as in summer in the middle of winter. We're on the cusp. We're in that ambiguous and confusing middle Fleming Rutledge also says, I, I might be quoting her all Advent, so I apologize, but I don't really apologize in advance. She says, the church lives in Advent, and that is to say the church lives between two Advents. Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ will come. We do not know the day or hour, and if you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you have understood the Christian life. If you find it almost unbearable at times, you've understood the Christian life. We live after the start, but before the end. And to act as if nothing is different in the world because God was born, died, and rose from the dead is heresy. To act as if anything we do is completely up to us or if we're going to see the end because of our own fruits is also heresy. The first is a heresy of waiting too long to get started. And the second is a heresy of making the almost into the completely, which is called idolatry. This is a really confusing place to be. It's a really vulnerable thing to be sprouting leaves in the middle of winter. You wonder if you showed up at the wrong time. You wonder if you're doing things right. If you sometimes feel this world is overwhelming or disorienting, you've got an accurate read on things. To be a follower of Jesus means to be living ahead of time. It means that our lives must bear witness to that awful tension between urgency and patience in this already and not yet. And the last thing in our passage is it tells us how we are to be. Because Jesus has come and will come again, we must stay awake. Because Jesus has come and will come again, we must stay awake. Three times you get it. If you missed it the first time, there's two more times. Stay alert, stay awake. The key to Advent is not whether we wait, but how we wait. What is the characteristic of our waiting? And it is, I think in this passage is telling us, it is an awakeness, even as the master householder is away and we're put in charge of things, we must stay awake. 
But friends, to have once been awake is not the same as staying awake. Just because you once woke up doesn't mean you're awake right now or that you'll be awake at the right time when you need to be. Some of us might be feeling this uh, weird lag in some things that we've learned during quarantine or sometimes uh, some uh, suffering that we've awakened to. Just because you woke up doesn't mean that you're staying awake, that you're being vigilant. Drifting back to sleep is as or more dangerous than just staying asleep in the first place. There's no virtue in once having been ready if you're not ready once the time has come. This is really important to us who are alive and who are awake in Christ. We can't sleep. We must live in the light. Ephesians 5 says, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. When the, the skies go dark in these apocalyptic passages, and I'm thinking uh, in Isaiah and Revelation and even in our passage in Mark, it is all almost always because Jesus is the light by which we should see. We've been relying on the sun when Jesus is the light. We light these Advent candles to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. Alertness, readiness, and attention, these are skills to develop. And so as we close today, I invite you during this Advent time to be developing these skills. These are like soft skills that take a whole lot of work. In the same way, it takes a whole lot of strength to be gentle, because if you're not that strong, you're not going to be very gentle. If you ever go to the gym and you see people to, like banging weights, it's because they're probably not strong enough to gently set them on the ground, right? Uh, it takes a whole lot of trust to be patient. Uh, most of our impatience comes from lack of trust that the thing we want to happen will actually happen in due time. It takes a whole lot of confidence in God's future to be urgent in a way that is neither hostile nor resigned, but it's part and parcel of the very shalom, the peace that God is making, the new normal in Christ. So friends, to close, and I'll close in prayer. As God's Advent people, people who are living between these two Advents in this strange time, the challenge today is to stay awake for a change. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are making all things new. Lord, like the psalmist, we um, so often say and think that you are away or that you are sleeping, that you are not attentive to us, but it's so often that we are the ones sleeping and inattentive to the ways that you continue to come to us. Give us new ears, give us new eyes to hear and see. Give us hearts like Mary and Joseph that we might say yes to you and receive and make room for what you're doing in this world. Uh, Lord, um, help us uh, make space for and receive the change that you are bringing in this world. The new thing right in the midst of the old Join us to you in this uh, ambiguous and sometimes scary and sometimes tiresome time between Advents. Give us the grace to wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.